Welcome to the Faith and Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Eventide Center for Faith and Investing. We are an educational initiative of Eventide Asset Management, where our aim is to inspire an authentically Christian practice of modern investing. This podcast features conversations with thought leaders in the space of faith and investing, and also functions as an audio digest of the articles we feature in our online journal at faithandinvesting.com. Welcome back to the Faith and Investing Podcast. I'm Matt Gallion with the Eventide Center for Faith and Investing. Over the past couple of weeks, many of you have likely partaken in a cultural liturgy common to this time of year, that of personal assessments of the year before and goal setting for the year ahead. One quick look at one of these personal assessment tools will show neatly separated life categories for assessment, such as family, work, health, finances, or spirituality. While these categories help break down our lives for more targeted reflection, they can also reveal a distorted perspective that many pastors and theologians have labeled the sacred-secular divide, a view that sees our spiritual life as unrelated to the activities outside of personal piety, church life, and evangelism. When it comes to areas like business or investing, for example, spiritual or moral concerns are generally left at the door. In the realm of business ethics, this sacred-secular divide is referred to as the separation thesis. Today, we're featuring the first article in a two-part series from Ben Nicka that looks at the effects of the separation thesis on our investing. In this article, Ben reflects on the moment he realized such a separation was present in his personal investments. He further explores the dangers of such a mindset and ends with a helpful exercise for Christians to examine the motivations of their investing decisions. Ben Necka spent a decade and a half in mergers and acquisitions due diligence at Deloitte before moving to Scotland to study theological ethics at the University of Aberdeen. Ben holds an MA in religion from Westminster Theological Seminary. Without further delay, this is Ben Necka reading his article entitled Investing in the Separation Thesis, Part 1. Investing in the Separation Thesis, Part 1. Quote, you know what I hate about banking? It reduces people to numbers. End quote. So said Ben Rickert, played by Brad Pitt in the 2015 film The Big Short. The moral insight of this statement is simple. Losing sight of people, abstracting reality to numbers, sits at the essence of finance. And this focus on numbers impairs moral vision. Yes, there is a profusion of talk about ethics and investing evident in the emergent movements to base investing on values flowing from ESG, or environmental social governance, CSR, or Corporate Social Responsibility, Sustainable Impact, and even Faith-Based Perspectives. But while ethics certainly informs some investment decisions, these are mere ripples on the surface of the ethics of finance and the global investment pool. The vast depths of investment, hundreds of trillions of dollars, largely and deliberately elude moral direction. Last spring, I took this perspective on finance, along with 15 years of experience in the trenches of mergers and acquisitions, on a month-long trip to Oxford to research the ethics of finance and investing. On this trip, I also carried a countervailing hope that finance can see people within the numbers. This was rooted in my experience as a practitioner. A decade back, I was conducting due diligence for a leveraged buyout. It was an attractive deal taking assets from a distressed seller. The promise of big returns for our client was palpable. Momentum was considerable. But the numbers did not add up, 
and the books were a mess. One did the deal on faith or walked away. Frustrated and exhausted, my team got on a call with our client, managers of an infrastructure fund. I had the unenviable task of sharing that completing diligence was not possible. Our substantial fees would be a sunk cost. My client's response surprised me. He said, Ben, we are investing people's pension money. I'm responsible to them. We won't do the deal if the data isn't available to complete diligence. Thank you. He put the interests of others before his own. This response and others like it gave me hope that the moral vision of finance is substantial and can be restored. Two weeks into my trip, things took a troubling turn. A friend suggested I apply my findings to my own finances. What would I learn about finance if I compared my retirement and other savings to my charitable giving? My financial investments, it turned out, reduced people to numbers. The problem was not only out there, but in here. This had eluded my attention because my core beliefs about finance are deeply entrenched, more or less out of sight and mind. My friend had kindly forced me to consider the people behind the numbers. I saw that while I cared deeply about ethics generally, in my investing these were largely set aside. In what follows, I detail my personal journey of discovery about the schism in my moral life. My personal story highlights a broader issue, one many of us face personally and all of us face as a society. It is captured in the heated arguments over the proper role of finance and investing that play out in the financial press and popular culture. Should investments focus narrowly on generating returns and profits? Or should finance have broader goals in view? My inner schism is reflected in society's divided approach, namely that its morals are not reflected in its investing. As I began to dwell on this issue, I saw that the elusiveness of my own beliefs about finance and investing was due to a peculiar hiddenness. Even as modern investment theory's commitment to return and risk as the nearly exclusive criteria is an accepted part of investing common sense, its moral implications are hidden in plain sight, or as we will see, quote, too often what everyone believes, nobody knows, end quote. Clearly, a deeper understanding was needed. Yes, the abstraction of finance is critical to its work. It is a strength. But what happens when this abstraction causes moral blindness? Further, why is finance so susceptible to this particular moral peril? There was little possibility of finding a way forward when I had not done the hard work of diagnosing the problem. Surface-level analysis and the existing terms of debate would be insufficient here. This diagnostic work I completed revealed that the moral malignancy of finance is multiform. This two-part article engages with only one malforming facet, the separation thesis, the idea that the numbers can be viewed without regard to the people behind them. I learned this notion was at the core of my internal division. Part one of this article frames my introspective journey with a definition of the calling of finance and investing. It then explores the separation thesis through a review of the varied moral rationales at work in my financial and philanthropic investments. Part two 
further defines the separation thesis and suggests a path forward. The hope here is to create space for new ideas, motives, and actions within the existing conversation of directing one's investments to moral ends, especially for Christians. I started my investigation by looking at the calling of finance. Augustine of Hippo wrote long ago that only good is inherent in God's creation. Sin and darkness are merely parasitic, deformations of original good. It follows, then, that any critical ethical analysis of finance must be grounded by a grasp of the essential good that is being distorted. Finance, as a field of work, is first a response to God. As a part of the created realm of work, finance and investing have their own integrity, purpose, and logic, but they also share in a general calling applicable to all work. This created realm of work is being renewed in Jesus, and as Colossians 1.16 makes clear, all things are ordered now to Christ. Finance, like all work, is called to contribute uniquely to the establishing and sustaining of a broad-based societal flourishing and justice. It is called to be a, quote, mask of God, end quote, to use Luther's phrase, through which God provides and blesses. Within this larger reality and purpose of work, finance is charged specifically with the stewardship and fruitful investment of capital. This capital, entrusted to individuals and to finance, is the shared inheritance of humanity and represents the accumulated creation of value through our forebears' work, thrift, creative differentiation, investments, and marshalling of the earth's given abundance. Speaking of capital as an inheritance reminds us that it is ultimately from God. Being rooted in the creative powers given to human beings, God's sustaining power, and the resources and sufficient fecundity of the earth placed under the care of humanity. This stewardship of finance involves allocation of capital to the best and highest uses, those investments that will best further societal flourishing and justice. These investments should support the engagement and unfolding of human giftedness and capacities and the maintenance and real economic growth of the capital invested. Individual investors are also implicated here as holders of capital, with a key additional challenge for this group being the cultivation of thrift. The profession of finance properly carries out this calling as an intermediary, a servant, by bringing savers and builders of various things, ventures, offices, homes, educations, etc., together to amass resources to facilitate scale and duration in public and private investment and by enabling flows of value to facilitate trading. To do this well, finance must refine its moral culture, processes, markets, modes of analysis, and ownership structures to conduct these tasks of finance efficiently and truthfully, orienting them in total toward their proper ends. This work of finance has a thoroughgoing moral frame. Every aspect of its work, including investing, despite its increasingly technical nature, is ethically contained within its calling and the moral frame common to all human activity. Capital, for example, like all parts of human culture, has an inescapable moral aspect, and so can be put to either immoral or moral ends in its omissions as much as its commissions. But it cannot be neutral.
capital, like work, like life, is first oriented to God and through God to humanity and the earth. However, the tremendous complexity of finance and the sheer immensity of its power make the moral frame of finance difficult to discern. To be fair, while the current ethos of the industry deviates from the true calling of finance in significant ways, it does not do so entirely. Finance has done and continues to do much good. However, the root causes of the moral deformity of finance should be of a concern to us all. In ways often not noted, most professional and non-professional investors participate in, are marked by, and sustain this deformity. The separation thesis mentioned above, which posits that finance operates in a world of facts and rationality that does not require moral direction outside of laws and regulations, is one such aspect of this deformity. Reflection on our personal investments can shed light on this abstract notion. Here, I invite you to pause and conduct a brief audit exercise. Please list your investments, noting the cash, bonds, real estate, and equities you hold. There is no need for monetary values, but including these might make the exercise more meaningful. Next to each category, add a sentence detailing its rationale. Why this investment and this amount? Many will not have all this information top of mind, so for purposes of illustration, let us consider my own investments. Here is my list, along with the corresponding rationales. I hold 20% in cash. This cash is held at Synchrony Bank, which is convenient and pays high interest rates. The high allocation to cash reflects skepticism about the markets and savings for a down payment. As you'll note, I lack any investments in real estate, residential or otherwise. I hold 40% in equities, primarily in low-fee index funds. Many feel index funds generally outperform actively managed mutual funds on an after-fee, long-term, risk-adjusted basis. They are recommended by many for the average investor. I hold 20% in bonds. These are held in mutual funds. This allocation, perhaps high given my age, again reflects my skepticism, but I recognize that in the current U.S. asset bubble and the associated turmoil of unwinding a decade-plus Federal Reserve experiment in outlandishly loose money, there is nowhere to hide, not even in bonds. Lastly, 20% of my savings are in a cash balance pension at my employer. I have no knowledge or control over where this balance is invested. My investment approach is simple, focused exclusively on return, risk, and convenience. To explore a different approach to investing, let's compose a second list, detailing our philanthropic investments, again noting rationales. I call these investments rather than giving, because in them I am most certainly seeking a return, albeit a non-financial one, namely a furthering and enriching of the good work the organization is doing. Here are my philanthropic investments from 2022. I gave 70% of my monthly earnings to my church, Restoration Anglican. The church plays an irreplaceable and good role in our cultures, cities, and families. We are proud of our local church. 23% went to the disadvantaged and unfortunate. 
I gave to three organizations here. Open Hands Legal Services provides free legal representation in New York City, pushing back against those using the law to abuse and exploit. Jericho Road Ministries and Community Emergency Service in Minneapolis, Minnesota, each provide goods and services to those in need, physically or spiritually. Both stepped into the gap during the pandemic and the George Floyd protests. 7% went to practical theology, specifically the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, an intellectual think tank and counseling center in Philadelphia that addresses matters of the heart and head and supported the work of my favorite thinker, Dr. David Paulison. Lastly, from bonuses and tax returns we gave to a Christian formation center at the University of Minnesota called Anselm House. In constructing your own list or reviewing mine, what emotions or thoughts arose? What differences did you notice in the two approaches to investing? Moral discernment, to be sure, involves listening to these hunches and the resonances with scripture and convictions that arise. I leave you with this important internal dialogue until next time. Part two of this article will further define the separation thesis, explore how the allocation of my personal financial and philanthropic investments, and perhaps yours, illustrate its logic, and consider a way forward. Thank you for listening to the Faith and Investing Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, share with a friend, or rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. Your rating and review allows more people to discover helpful resources on faithful investing. To find out more about the Eventide Center for Faith and Investing, visit us at faithandinvesting.com. The communication herein is provided for informational purposes only and was made possible with the financial support of Eventide Asset Management, LLC, known as Eventide, an investment advisor. Eventide Center for Faith and Investing is an educational initiative of Eventide. In some cases, information in this communication may include statements by individuals that are current clients or investors in Eventide and or individuals compensated for providing their statements. In such cases, Eventide identifies all relevant details of the relationship, the compensation, and any conflicts of interest within the communication which can be found at faithandinvesting.com. Information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources believed to be reliable. Statements made by ECFI should not be interpreted as a recommendation or advice pertaining to any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.